Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Guest today is Professor Oswald Schmitz, who's a professor of population and community ecology in the Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. His research aims to make sense of nature's complexity that comes from interdependencies among the variety of carnivore, herbivore, and plant species that coexist within ecosystems. These insights help to inform environmental stewardship to enhance the conservation of wildlife species and ensure the sustainability of ecosystems, their functions, and the services they provide to humankind. Welcome, Oz. Thank you, Gil. Um, just one small correction, and maybe I, I forgot to do it because we've just um, gone through it. Uh, we just changed the school's name. It's now the School of the Environment. Um, oh, environment, okay. Um, to signal to the broader world that, that we do more than just forestry research. We, we do all sorts of uh, environmental research in the school, a whole diversity of environmental research in the school. That's good. So it's Yale University School of Environment. Now. Yes. Yes, okay. that's the new name. Perfect, perfect. So I want to start with your 2017 paper entitled The Predator Community Composition is linked to soil carbon retention across a human land use gradient. Uh, you say that soil carbon storage is a major component of the carbon cycle. Consensus holds that soil carbon uptake and storage is regulated by plant microbe soil interactions. However, the contribution of animals in above ground food webs to this process has been overlooked. Um, that's something that, um, you know, typically people don't think about that, right? So, so you want to talk a bit about how animals um, really interact with this, the, uh, this process? Uh, certainly. Um, you know, going back to the, the original conceptions in ecology, and these are long-standing, um, deeply ingrained ideas about how ecosystems work. And, and basically the idea is that, you know, plants are the most abundant um, in terms of biomass on the planet. If you look around everywhere, you know, you see green here and there. Um, and, and most of the world is green if it isn't built over in, in urban areas with cement. Um, 
And, and so uh, people have believed for the longest time that, you know, the plants, because they were so abundant, that they were the only things that really mattered in terms of um, taking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, storing it in their biomass, and when they, you know, at the end of the growing season um, died, um, all of that, that organic matter would go into the soil and then either be broken down by microbes or stored in the soil. And so most of the focus was on, on, on in the carbon cycle was really on looking at the plants and the soil and microbial interactions. Um, the idea is that with habitat, um, you know, animals require habitat and usually that habitat is also vegetation. But the idea was in terms of habitat, you know, if they build it, we will come type of mentality. That is, if the habitat is there, if nature builds the habitat, then um, wildlife species will come to the habitat and live in the habitat, and that's a passive thing. Hmm. What we're finding, however, is that you know wildlife that live in habitat, they also eat the habitat, they eat the plants. Yeah. Um, so when they eat the plants, they get nutrition from the plants, and some of that is carbohydrate, which, which is really carbon-based. And so they consume the carbon carbohydrate because they um, need that to support their energy needs. And um, so right away, the animals can lower the amount of, of organic matter, you know, the dead, dead leaves and twigs and everything that, that fall into the soil at the end of the growing season. That, that amount is lowered because the herbivores are eating that. Mm. Um, but what's, what's interesting, though, is um, that you can also have predators in the ecosystem that prey on the herbivores. Yeah. And so if there are fewer herbivores, there's less damage to the plants. And so the predators actually might become very important in protecting um, the amount of carbon that plants take up in, in the ecosystem. And so um, the predators are actually um, a beneficial factor to the carbon cycle because they promote it by, by reducing the amount of herbivore damage. So, so this is little bit counterintuitive and I don't know anything about it. So if, if you look at the, the biomass uh, of the plants themselves, one would have thought, uh, without knowing a lot about it, one would have thought that the consumption of the plants by animals is a smaller part uh, of the biomass, but that is not the case? Uh, it, it doesn't have to be the case. Um, the interesting part is, uh, um, there, there, there are two dimensions to this story. The first is that when herbivores damage plants, right, that, that they inflict a wound in the plant and the plant then has to make a physiological adjustment. And what often happens is they, they shut off photosynthesis or slow down photosynthesis. And if you're slowing down photosynthesis, you're taking up less carbon out of the atmosphere. And the other part of it is, is because you're stressed, you're, you're burning energy more. And so plants also burn the energy that they made, the, the, the carbon or the carbohydrate that they produced. Um, and, and so they respire a lot of the carbon back to the atmosphere because of the stress. Mm -hmm. And so the reduction in photosynthesis and the increase in respiration means that the plants are not taking up as much carbon and they're also burning up and, and, and uh, emitting the carbon back to the atmosphere. Um, that will slow down as the plant heals itself, but if the animals are continually, um, in a recurring way, continually damaging the plants, 
um, then that photosynthesis slowdown and the increased respiration can be persistent over a long period. Um, and, and, and even light browsing on the plant, you know, um, even if, if a herbivore eats a few leaves or, or a small amount of biomass, the plant itself, feeling that it is being damaged, will actually shut the whole system down. Hmm. And so um, herbivores actually have what's what we call a multiplier effect, an effect that's disproportionately larger than, than the damage it inflicts. Wow. And then the other, the other dimension of that is um, some predators actually stress the herbivores out, right? And when you're stressed, you actually, you know, when we're stressed, what the first thing we do is we go to the, the, the pantry and look for cookies, you know, the sugar, or go to the fridge and get an ice cream cone or something um, because we're craving sugar and that's craving carbohydrates. And so when predators are around, herbivores get stressed the same way we get stressed in, in very risky situations. And, and they start craving carbohydrates because their metabolism goes up. The, the fear factor actually increases their metabolism. And so they crave plants that actually hold a lot more carbon in them. And so they will um, preferentially feed on plants that are actually good at taking up carbon and, and storing it in their leaves. Yeah, so this is a complex, really complex process. So just the presence of animals in the wild um, and, and what they do, not just, not just consuming plants, but, but uh, trampling on the ground um, and really stressing out uh, the plants themselves. And then you have the whole pyramid there in terms of predators and the herbivores and the herbivores are, are getting stressed out. So, so they tend to consume um, consume carbohydrates uh, uh, um, in a, from, from plants that are more beneficial to the environment from a storage perspective. And so, so essentially the, the whole stressed out system is able to store less carbon. Uh, is, is that the idea? That is correct. Yes, yes, exactly. And and so, so, so from, a, uh, from an intervention perspective, um, so, so you have to really think about the entire system here, all the way from, uh, you have to look at all animals in the environment uh, to see what might be sort of an ideal situation. That, 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 that is correct to some extent. Um, yeah. um, you know, the, the way we go about it, though, is, is if you think about nature, there, there is a dizzying complexity of, of all sorts of herbivore species, right? We have, um, it, when we're thinking of mammals, even here in the Northeast, we've got, you know, we've got mice, we've got rabbits, we've got white-tailed deer. Um, there are, you know, even, even um, wild turkeys, to some extent, do you know, nibble on vegetation. And then we have a whole host of insect species also that, that are, are damaging the vegetation. Um, and so, you know, if you were to account for every species, it would be just really, really impossible to, to think about interventions. It, it, it would just blow your mind um, trying to imagine all of the interconnected uh, complexity. So what, what we as ecologists try to do is think about things in a little more functional sense. And what we do is we group species according to their, their uh, functional traits or, or their functional roles in a system. And so we can simplify the, the complexity a little bit by thinking about 
large herbivores versus small herbivores. Hmm. Um, we can think about, um, you know, in the insect world, uh, herbivores that are predominantly leaf chewers versus insects that, that uh, actually uh, bore into leaf tissue and suck the juices out of leaves. So we can group things and, and make them much more simple. And um, what we're finding is that species within a grouping, that is, if you're, in a, if you're part of the large herbivore group or the small herbivore group, you have pretty similar effects when you're a part of that group. And so you can characterize the, the impact in, in, a, in, a, in a more simplified way. You're still recognizing differences, but, but you can control the complexity. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's such a non-linear system too, right? So if we were to fine-tune some aspects of this, either culling uh, a species, a group of, uh, a group of species, um, or enhancing the numbers in certain other parts of the system, any sort of artificial intervention could have a um, lot of non-forecastable effects, right? They, you know, they, they could, but but what we're finding is we can get a handle on it. We, we can forecast things a little bit um, more precisely than you can imagine. Um, and and, and the, the advantage comes from grouping species according to similar roles that they play according to their functional traits. Um, you can develop mathematical models that make predictions about that. And, and, and we've done that with our own work where, um, you know, you, you, you focus, for example, you can focus on a certain kind of predator feeding on a certain kind of herbivore um, group. And um, when I say a certain kind of uh, predator, it could be a whole variety of predators that are largely sit and wait predators, or alternatively, a whole variety of predators that are actively hunting predators. Um, those groups have, you know, species within those groups have the same kinds of effects on the herbivores. And so, by, by sort of grouping things and then looking at their interconnections, we can make um, some decent predictions about the amount of carbon that should be stored in the soil, um, given the nature of the way they interact. And we've been, we've, you know, the paper that, um, that we're talking about right now yeah. is actually a validation of a model prediction where we, we would argue that, you know, with this kind of predation, you would see this much soil retention um, and then with another kind of predator, you would see a, a very different um, soil carbon retention. We've made predictions about that. And the predictions actually bear out across that, that human land use gradient. Hmm. Is this, um, I don't know if this is already being, uh, being done. Or, so th this sounds to me that there could be some sort of a monitoring system. There could be some AI techniques you could apply if, if the objective function is, and I'm just making this up, if the objective function is to maximize carbon sequestration, then there is a, there is a, a, um, a, a characteristic that you're looking for uh, in terms of you know, the animals and the plants, and, and actually in this case, um, insects and the whole system, right? Yes. And so, could we actually have some sort of a monitoring system that provides decision guidance as to how to maximize sequestration? Uh, you, you could. Um, and the way you would do that is you would think of the different species as a part of a portfolio of, yeah. of organisms that you can pick. So, you know, 
building on your economic argument, um, you could use what's called portfolio theory in a sense to um, uh, think about, you know, species with certain functional traits or groupings and you you know how much if, if if just that species group were present you would store x amount of carbon if you added a certain number of other uh, groups from different you know um, or number of individuals from different groups you would get an incremental increase in carbon storage um, it isn't always just simply additive though but but we can um, sort of uh, come up with a way of characterizing how much carbon um, you can take up for every incremental increase in functional group that you add to, to the system. Um, there is some what we call functional redundancy in the system. So, um, so, so the, the portfolio theory idea is, is you, know, you, can, you can incrementally add species um, from different functional groups um, and, and sort of build up complexity and then you can sort of assess how much carbon you're storing for every incremental increase in numbers of, of groupings that you add. Um, and, and part of it also is, is it, it's, you're gonna have diminishing returns eventually because there is some certain amount of redundancy among species in their functional roles. Um, so in other words, within a group of species that perform a similar function, obviously you don't need every, every species necessarily to perform that function. There are some backups. It's, it's, it's the same sort of idea as having several computers to back up, um, you know, when you're flying a plane or, or going, using a space shuttle or something like that. So if one fails, you've always got another species and that's part of the portfolio effect also. Um, it provides you insurance so that, you know, you, you'll have some species that, that will perform the function if you lose others. Um, but you can, you, you can make some decent predictions about, you know, what exact portfolio of, of different kinds of functional species you might need to live together to maximize that. And then we do have um, technical instruments where you can actually measure and, and monitor um, uh, the amount of carbon that's being stored or released. Yeah, it sounds to me, Oz, that um, just the data from the, from the air from above is not going to be sufficient, right? You need sort of ground-based monitoring. Yes, I mean, you know, to some extent, yes, although the technology is getting better. So um, you yeah. can use drones nowadays uh, with this technology called LIDAR. Um, it's, and, and the LIDAR will actually um, be able to give you a three-dimensional portrait of the vegetation canopy or the habitat. Um, and they have also sensors on, on LIDAR and, and drones nowadays where you can actually look at the color spectrum that's being emitted from the plants and, and tell what, what the chemical composition of the plant material is, which is just amazing. So you, you can do flyovers and figure out how much carbon is actually being stored in, in the vegetation. Um, but to, to know how much is being stored in the soil, yes, you have to actually go on sample in the field and um, either take soil samples or stick probes in the soil and, and measure soil respiration. Yeah, or, or something that is continuously doing it. That's right, some correct. Yeah. Um, so, so in the paper, you say the study offers a generalizable understanding of the pathways through which anthropod predator community composition can contribute to ecosystem carbon storage. So, so, so you have some sort of a heuristic here. Can you use this to 
go to a new environment and do a diagnostic and say the capacity of that system in terms of sequestration is X? Yeah, um, we, we, we can to some extent. Um, and, and the reason why, again, the, the work that, that that paper deals with is, is dealing with insects, um, mostly grasshoppers and spiders. But there are functional analogs in the mammal community too. So that, um, you know, in terms of diet selection and the way, let's say a large grasshopper eats grass, um, there's a functional analog of that grasshopper in a mammal community eating the same kind of grass. And, and we've learned a lot about that working in Western prairie environments where there's a, a greater diversity of mammalian herbivores and a greater diversity of, of um, uh, grasshopper species. Um, and and it, what's really neat is you can do these experiments at the small scale and really validate your princi the principles, your scientific principles. And then because there's an analog in the mammal community, um, the, 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 the processes should replicate themselves. And so you can look at the mammals in the same way you look at the grasshoppers and spiders. Obviously, though, you cannot um, do experiments on them because the mammals roam over bigger spaces and you can't enclose them as easily. Um, but what, what we do find is, is because they are, they are functional analogs, they, they, they um, drive the carbon cycling in a similar way. Yeah, so, so will the techniques be applicable also in, in very large systems like the Amazon or, or, or some African um, areas? Yes, can, yes. Can... Um, again, you know, certainly insect, uh, studying insects in all these places, things are transferable. Um, and again, um, you, you can study these things in tropical forests. Tropical forests are a little more difficult because the canopy is closed. Um, makes it a little bit harder to uh, uh, track the animals. Um, but, but certainly in African savannas and, and maybe boreal forests that aren't as dense, um, you can also track animals and, and monitor their movement and monitor their foraging behavior and monitor the predator-prey interactions. Um, and, and do, you know, as with, with this LIDAR technology, you can also then, um, you know, measure the spatial differences in, in amount of carbon stored. Um, and that's the basis of that other paper that I sent you, the, the, the paper we, the, the, the 2018 paper, um, yeah. where we talk about scaling, you know, these principles up from, you know, my experiments with spiders and grasshoppers to bigger landscape scales and, and, um, you know, that's, that's the scale actually where, where people really matter because they also have different values for that landscape, right? You know, in a tropical forest, people want to um, harvest timber, which also removes carbon from the landscape. They uh, hunt animals, which could lead to loss of diversity, which could then impact the carbon cycle and all that. And so um, the bigger scale you take, with your analysis, the more and more you actually have to think about how people are also becoming part of that um, that giant food web that you're you're trying to understand. Right, right. We'll take a we'll take a quick break, uh, Oz. When we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit about your experiments in the spider um, uh, grasshopper okay. <laughs> experiment. Uh, as well as the, the zoo geochemistry and the, and the scale up of this. Okay, that sounds good. Thank you.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, we are talking about soil carbon storage and uh, and the and the carbon cycle. And uh, typically, we think about this as a plant microbe soil interaction as being the most important one. Uh, but um, your research uh, and uh, your papers are pointing to the contribution of animals um in that carbon sequestration process and that carbon cycle process um and so you have done a lot of experiments around this one of them uh is uh, that involve um spiders and grasshoppers and different types of spiders and and, uh, and they all have different effects on the environment right that's correct so so how does that experiment go so um as as i mentioned earlier uh, there, there are different hunting modes of, of uh, that predators may adopt. Predator species may adopt. Some are sit and wait. Um, they, they just lie in ambush, in, hiding in ambush. And then others are widely roaming, and and they roam all over the the, the vegetation and and in search of prey. Um, what's really interesting though is the cues they leave uh, differ. So so a sit and wait ambush predator. The grasshopper actually ends up being a pretty smart little critter. Um, they know where the risky neighborhood is, but the thing is, these sit and wait predators are also smart. They they lay in wait near the best parts of the vegetation where the most nutritious parts of the um, vegetation are, and so. Yeah. The grasshoppers, when they're facing sit and wait ambush predators, they know the risky neighborhood, um, but they also are attracted to that neighborhood to get the best nourishment. And so they have to play a trade-off game of how much do I go there and how much do I back off and not eat. And, um, and, and sometimes, you know, they don't get as much nutrition. They don't, they aren't as damaging on the vegetation simply because they're scared to eat in those areas. So the predators don't even have to kill them to reduce the impact that the grasshoppers have on the vegetation. Um, but the other thing that happens is because they know it's a fearful part of the landscape, um, they, their, their metabolism goes up again, because again, they're scared. This is a risky neighborhood. And, and when they get scared um, and their metabolism goes up, they become much more agile and agitated. That helps them escape predation, but it also means that they have to eat more carbohydrate to fuel that added energy. Mm. The widely roaming predators, on the other hand, um, you know, they're all over the place so that a grasshopper doesn't know at any one moment where that predator is. And so if it was completely fearful all the time, it might be wasting opportunity to eat vegetation when it really didn't have to, right? Mm. Um, because it's not going to encounter the predator. And, and so it behaves entirely different. And this could be the same individual grasshopper facing different predators. And so what we find is um, 
the, the grasshoppers that are facing the actively hunting predators, um, they eventually get picked off by the predators. They get killed. Um, and so there are fewer herbivores to eat the vegetation. And so a lot of the vegetation, and, and in a lot of cases, the the plants with a lot of carbohydrate in them don't get eaten. The metabolism, their photosynthesis and their respiration doesn't change. And so a lot of that vegetation ends up in the soil. And so you store a lot of carbon in the soil when the hunting mode of the predator is an active hunting predator. Hmm. With the sit and wait predator, on the other hand, uh, um, because your metabolism is increased and you're craving these carbohydrates, you're eating the carbon out of the plants, right? You're damaging the plants. You're also lowering their ability to do photosynthesis, but you're eating also those valuable carbohydrates out of the plants. So at the end of the growing season, those plants have less carbon that goes in the soil. So you store substantially less carbon when you're facing a sit and wait predator as opposed to an active hunting predator. Mm. But uh, presumably it's a sort of an unstable system, right? At some point, uh, if, if you have active hunting spiders, at some point, they will run out of grasshoppers, won't they? Um, no, because because there are upper limits on how much a, a predator can eat in any given amount of time. Huh. Um, so, um, you know, again, uh, it's a diminishing returns. Um, a predator, you know, it's it's the same thing as as you. Um, we just had Thanksgiving. You just, you know, you can't you you can eat a turkey dinner. But eventually you become so full in a period of time that you can't take in more food, right? And 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 that that's true within a day, that's true within a week of a for a predator, that's true within the summer. Um, so when you have a lot of grasshoppers around, it is virtually impossible for you to wipe out all of the grasshoppers. Uh, but is there sort of an optimum ratio between grasshoppers and active active hunting spiders and sit and wait spiders that makes the system in a sort of a stable there the 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 ratio um yes in 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 certain abundances but that's really determined by the ratio of body sizes really it's it's Mm -hmm. more um you know spiders of a certain body size are needed to be able to kill a grasshopper of a certain body size um so you need pretty big hunting spiders to kill a grasshopper. And with other, let's say, smaller sap-feeding insects, really tiny ones, um, they would be unprofitable for the spider because they're just too small. They, you know, the, the, the predator would uh, expend too much energy to try and catch them to make it worth their while. So smaller predators are better suited to eat the smaller prey. And so that, you know, so in terms of functional equivalence, again, you you have what we call trait matching is that a predator of a certain size is needed to kill a prey of a certain size. And, and, and again, that simplifies some of the complexity because you can match um, predator and prey body sizes and look at those um, uh, smaller groups of, of species that, that have similar sizes. Um, and understand their interactions that way. And and that's really where the balance comes in. So if you, for example, if you had a large predator that wasn't very effective at eating small prey, then um, there would be an imbalance because the prey would really become highly abundant because they wouldn't be controlled by their predator. Right, right. And uh, your other paper in 2018, you say that um, recent results suggest that functional traits are malleable 
enabling species to rapidly respond and adapt to each other's environmental conditions change uh, with predictable effects on ecosystem processes. So again, this is a very dynamic system, right? Um, that different uh, different animals are responding to uh, changes that they're observing, and uh, I would imagine, you know, it, it's a um, it's a game uh, that continues to evolve, right? That's correct, and and um, again, what I mean by malleable or flexible is the case I just gave. You know, so you have a, let's suppose you have a grasshopper um, that's living in a, in a meadow or, or a bunch of grasshoppers living in a meadow. And um, let's suppose, you know, they're facing these sit and wait ambush predators. Their metabolism is heightened, you know, because they're living in this risky environment. There's a lot of apprehension and anxiety um, and, and, and they're being agitated, you know, so that, 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 that they can escape the predators better. Um, but then let's suppose somehow those predators disappeared and we ended up having predators with um, just active hunting styles that didn't, that didn't create the same kind of fearful environment. Hmm. Then again, because, you know, from an economic standpoint, it wouldn't make sense for the herbivore to waste all that energy when it didn't need to, it will actually lower its physiological processes, lower its metabolic rate, become less stressed and go about changing um, how it feeds and what it feeds on. And so that's what I mean by malleable or flexible. The same individual uh, between a highly risky environment or a low risk environment adjusts its physiology and its behavior to accommodate those different environmental conditions and then optimize its its resource intake for those conditions. Um, you know, the amazing thing that grasshoppers do that against spiders tells us that you know, these, these animals can really sense their environment and actually make active decisions. There's, there's, you know, these animals are smart. They're not just automatons that, that just sort of wander around and, and respond instinctively. They, they make active choices. So um, that's the amazing thing that, that you learn when you study these species. Yeah. And, and obviously there is a selection effect happening from an evolutionary perspective. Of course. Too. Um, yeah. For those who yes. survive, yeah, continue to get yeah. smarter, I would imagine. Um, and, and so, so, so if you were to optimize this, it, it seems to me, uh, Oz, that there is a fair amount of predictability here. Uh, so given a set of initial conditions in an environment, you could, you could predict uh, if with no intervention, where that system might end up in. Yeah, you, you could predict. Um, uh, so, so we can develop mathematical models that, that describe um, how the abundance of the animals change, um, how their physiology changes, um, and you know what that means for their feeding. And then uh, you can make predictions about, uh, you know, let's suppose this kind of predator came in or that kind of predator, um, what would be the, the ripple effects, the, the cascading effects on the vegetation and how much carbon is stored in the environment. And that's, that's what I mean by generalizable principles. Um, uh, you know, hunting mode, all predators have, can be assigned to a hunting mode. The herbivores, they're grazers. You know, you can look at mammals as grazers. And, and so by doing this, you, you can make some reliable predictions about how 
if we were to change the habitat conditions that change the risk environment for these animals, um, we could predict what the outcome would be. Yeah, I mean, this is still the most efficient and least expensive carbon sequestration process. So I wondered, um, would you would you recommend, I mean, we could potentially genetically engineer certain species, right, that, that will have a beneficial effects on sequestration, or is it taking it a bit too far? You, you could, um, but, you know, what I've been talking about is what we call nature-based solutions or, or natural carbon sequestration. You're, you're, you're taking advantage of nature. And, and I'm not saying that nature is going to rescue us. You know, um, you know, let me preface this first by saying we still have to reduce our carbon emissions if we want to balance the global carbon cycle. But, but we haven't tapped nature enough, I think. Um, and, and so one of the reasons why people have started looking at technology is because of the classical way that people calculate the carbon budget. They assume that these animals don't have an impact. They only think about the plants, the soil, and the microbes, right? And when you do that, what we can show or what, other, what, what the scientific community can show is, is that you underestimate or overestimate sometimes the capacity of, of the plants themselves with the soil and the microbes to take up carbon. You, these, you under or overestimate by anywhere from 50 to, to 70 percent, you know. So in other words, mm. if you're underestimating, what, you mean, what that means is there's missed opportunity in really trying to use nature to even increase the amount of carbon that you could take up, you know. So and, and when you're overestimating it, what it means is we actually have to think about maybe what management interventions we can take um, to to uh, reduce that 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 uh, um, overestimate of, of carbon that we're, we're, we're coming up with. Yeah, so is there a similar thing going on in the ocean or also it's not something that you study? I, I don't study it directly, but there are some really interesting um, implications, not only in the ocean, but in, the, in coastal systems, especially. So, so here, even here in New England, there's an interesting interaction. Um, you've got salt marsh grasses in New England and crabs normally feed in those salt marshes. Um, but the crabs and, and, and these salt marshes are really, really good at storing carbon. They're, they're much better than forests, actually, because basically the dead organic matter, the dead leaves from the salt marsh grasses um, end up going underwater. And, and you know, it, it becomes uh, low oxygen conditions, which doesn't promote microbial breakdown. So it just stays there as, as dead organic matter. And it's just carbon. You know, it's built up carbon. And... Mm -hmm. You know, you go along the, the New England seacoast and there's hundreds of years of carbon that's been stored there. There's old carbon and new carbon. But the thing is, um, with the tides coming in and out, what you have is um, fish, especially bluefish, that come in with the tide and they feed on the crabs. And so they prevent the crabs from overeating vegetation right mm. and so the, the the bluefish are actually protecting the carbon in the salt marsh but the the thing is what we're doing with with sport fishery to some extent in parts of new england they've been overfished and so when the tide comes in mm. the, there's no longer fish coming in and so the crabs that eat the vegetation thrive 
and there's a reduction in in um, salt marsh uh, uh, grasses that are are persisting, and even they get overeaten. And what that means is the the roots disappear from from the salt marsh. You know, where the, the the rooting disappears, and so the tide also washes all that carbon back into the ocean. And um, out there, actually, microbes can start breaking down the carbon, and then it goes back to the atmosphere. So, um, who would have thought that sport fishing can actually alter the carbon cycle? Yeah, I mean, if we are off, as you say, 50 to 70 percent either direction, uh, from a policy perspective, um, th this is a this is a it huge is. thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You're, you're right. And so so what's your sense? Are we if you look at the entire, you know, sort of large systems, um, which are, you know, still big sinks of carbon what is your sense? Are we overestimating or underestimating the sequestration? It, it depends where where you're looking, but I think in in a lot of cases we're underestimating. You know, um, we're we're underestimating the capacity of ecosystems to take up carbon. And and the the amount that gets in is also a function of uh, the concentration. In there, I would imagine, right? That the, the processes will change as a concentration the increases. Concentration in the atmosphere. Uh, a concentration of CO two, for example, increases yes, in the yes, atmosphere. That, that can change because again, photosynthesis can only operate at a certain fixed rate, right? And and even if there were no herbivores, plants can max out on their photosynthetic ability um, to take up carbon. So that's why. You know, you know, nature-based solutions are good, but but eventually, um, we're going to run out of the opportunity if we just continue to pollute the atmosphere. Um, and one of the things that that limit photosynthesis also is soil nutrients. And um, you know, if you're if you're if you have a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, pretty soon the plants will tap out the soil nitrogen. To the point where um, they won't meet their demand for nitrogen to be able to run the enzymes that that um, run photosynthesis, and and you won't be able to um, take up as uh, carbon anymore. And and again, that's that diminishing returns idea also. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue we have is, um, if I understand this correctly, is you know, the system is sort of self-equilibrating, provided it is within a range. Um, but it's outside that range. It's sort of a step function effect, right? Um, and and you get runaway runaway processes that you can really uh, really exactly. bring back. Yeah, exactly. So, right. So, yeah. um, you know, the, what what that means is we can't just rely on nature. What we have to do is also think about transitioning um, away from fossil fuel you know, uses to run our economy and transition to renewable energies. But, but again, what, what, what I see is here is, you know, we can't do a sudden transition, obviously. We have to do that gradually. We can't shock the economy. But because of the untapped potential that, you know, there, there's still more room for nature to take up carbon, we can use that as sort of a stopgap measure 
at the same time that we start slowly reducing our reliance on fossil fuel emissions. And so as we you know, increase our reliance on nature, we can slowly decrease our reliance on, on fossil fuel technology and switch to green energy. Yeah, so this might give us still a window of, uh, of survival, so to speak. Um, that if we do everything correctly, uh, as you say, uh, reducing the, the fossil fuel um, use, uh, but simultaneously increasing the, the natural sequestration processes, we might still be able to get out of the, the issue Correct. that we're currently you know, it, on. It, it, is, it is one, as people say, it's one wedge in this, uh, one stabilization wedge in the, in the in a, portfolio of other solutions to to deal with global climate change yes yeah and as, as we uh, just briefly mentioned uh, there's a similar thing going on in in the ocean um, I think very large animals uh, like whales for example when they die uh, they they actually go sink uh, all the way to the bottom of the sea and and get has a higher a higher level of sequestration um, in them, uh, and, and so so there is also you know some sort of a balancing act in the ocean that, that that's one correct. Could it's, it's not only whales; it's also you know thinking about fisheries, um, and and fish do the same. If you don't harvest them and they get old, um, you know the old ones die and they sink. Also, you know a good bit, a good number of them sink. Some of them do get broken down by microbes in in the ocean, but um, the, the other interesting thing, though, is um, with the whale story is whales, you know, obviously their carcasses hold carbon, but, but they also, in the course of diving down to the depths of the ocean and feeding and then coming to the surface waters, when they defecate into the water, they bring nitrogen into the, into the surface waters and, and also sometimes iron, which both are really important mm. for phytoplankton in the ocean, algae in the ocean. Um, and, and so what that does is nourishes the phytoplankton and then they'll suck out carbon out of the atmosphere um, through photosynthesis themselves. And um, when they get old and die, they sink to the ocean floor also. And, and the ocean floor is a long-term carbon storage sink. It, it, you, know, you can store carcasses down there at depth for thousands of years. And also the zooplankton, you know, again, you have these food chains in, in the marine realm, the zooplankton that die and the, and, and the zooplankton's, you know, particles that they defecate will also sink. And so there's a lot of opportunity to use the ocean as, as a carbon sink um, mm. and, and long-term storage. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, Oz, you know, what would you suggest looking forward in a five to 10 year window uh, what would be sort of the policy uh, ideas that you would pursue from a natural sequestration well, perspective? Well, first of all, um, we have to appreciate that there isn't a silver bullet here with nature. Um, what we have to do is, 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 you know, there isn't some global strategy, single global strategy that we could use. Instead, what we need to do is think about our local environments. And here, um, you know, the adage... Um, think globally, act locally is really, really important. If we understand our local ecosystems and, and different, you know, tropical ecosystems work differently than Northeastern forests. Um, but if we think about the forest ecology and trying to keep the forest healthy, 
and that includes keeping the animals in the forest also um, and, and really thinking about that in a local context uh, where we can actually do something about it um, by protecting as much of green space as we can um, but also, you know, we, we have to use it for our livelihoods, but figuring out how do we use that for our livelihoods, but also ensure um, the, the carbon values that we get out of them, then I think we can actually slowly solve some problems and, and, and tailor our solutions to the local values and, and wishes and dreams and, and welfare of people in local communities. Yeah, so, so the... Uh, there, there is no, uh, what you're suggesting, if I understand it correctly, Oz, is that it is not going to be one size fits all. It has to be really localized, customized exactly. policies that, yeah, each country, each state well, in the or, U.S. Or really. Like New England works uh, together really well on solving some of these problems. So even just thinking regionally, like um, the New England Governors Association or the Western Governors uh, Associations are regional governing, and they think, you know, about their region. But the, the nice thing about doing that, as you say, it, it, it's, it's uh, you know, sort of thinking about the people that live in the place. And so when we really understand their values, you get more buy-in than if it was a one-size-fits-all solution. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Oz. Yeah, thanks Thank so much you, for spending this, time this with me. wonderful. I, I, I had a great time. Yeah, and good luck with this research. Okay. It's, uh, Thank it's you. really important. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.